I will go to the stage. If you can't see me, I will go to the stage. But if you don't know this about me, I like to wiggle. Because um, I was ADD as a child and still working through that. Um, this morning, though, this morning, I'm excited to bring you the word. Um, I want to talk about something, though, that's kind of personal to me, uh, something that's important to me, is I don't know if you're at all like me in this, but I'm a person who loves random factoids. Random factoids, I love them, especially when I'm listening to a sermon or I'm reading scripture. My goal is to always find something new and interesting, some new juicy tidbit that I didn't know. Like for instance, uh, I wanna say it's like six or seven weeks ago when Pastor Chris was talking about uh, Obadiah and he was preaching through Obadiah and he threw the picture of Petra up on the wall and he talked about how the people that built Petra were the same as the biblical people Edom. I love that stuff. I was like, oh, that's fascinating. I didn't know that at all. It has zero substance, really, into my own like, development or life, but I love stuff like that. It brings out my inner trivial pursuit nerd, and I eat it up. And so there's nothing wrong with finding things like that. I want to be clear. There's nothing wrong with seeking out juicy tidbits. The problem becomes when we get to a place where we hear a passage or we hear a sermon that we've heard a dozen times and we're like, yeah, there's nothing new here for me. Our gut often is to just zone out. Our gut is to read something like, ah, next, and then we read the next thing. And the reason I bring this up is that was my initial reaction to this passage. As I read it, I was like, uh, it's really simple. It's not fancy. There's no real juicy tidbits. I've read this story a dozen times or so. So what? And I wanted to move on from it, or I wanted to find something that I could tell you about, something of interest to hook you. And I was like, yeah, I got nothing. I got nothing. So what I was then forced to do is I was forced to confront the simplicity of the text, forced to confront the simple message that it communicates to us. And what I found was in that simple message, a story or a message we have heard time and time again, I found great encouragement at the same time, great challenge. And so my hope today as we read this story is that you, even with your own familiarity towards this text, would find it encouraging. That you today would walk away with a deeper appreciation for the authority of Jesus' word and that you would hunger and long to apply that passage or that scripture or his word to your life. That's my hope. And that's how it challenged me. So this morning, I invite you to open up to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Pretty short story, and like I said, a pretty simple story. Luke 7, it's on page 720 in the Pew Bible. What makes this story so simple is this. It is a story about a man with great faith. Such great faith, in fact, that Jesus is totally caught off guard by him. And he turns to the crowd, he's like, I've never seen anybody with faith like this. I've never seen it before. I, I don't know what to do with this. Well, he doesn't say, I don't know what to do with this. But he's caught off guard by it. The story goes as follows. Very simple. 
A, a centurion, a centurion, for those who don't know, is a Roman soldier who is in charge of a century, a, in charge of about 100 troops, okay? So this was a, a commander, if you will, and he has a servant in his house who is sick. So he sends some people to ask Jesus to help heal his servant. Jesus then responds and heals the servant. That's the story. It's really simple. But like I said, let's allow the simplicity of this text to challenge us today. Luke 7, 1 through 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with, earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I did not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word. Just say it. Give me the word. Let me know you're going to do it, and I know my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. That one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such faith, such great faith, even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Simple text. Guy asks Jesus for healing. Jesus does it. Jesus is amazed at the man's faith because it's, he doesn't need a miracle show. He doesn't need anything else. Let's unpack this story. It starts when Jesus had finished saying all this. Anytime the scripture does this, anytime it references something that had previously been said, at a minimum, at a minimum, what it's saying is you should have that in mind. Sometimes it's a direct connection, but I don't think it's always a direct connection. So that's why I say, at a minimum, it's shadowing what was already said. So what was already said? If you look back at chapter 6, starting in verse 17, we're told Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place, and then he began preaching. He began preaching. This is what Luke calls his Sermon on the Plain. Sermon on the Plain. Sermon on the Level Place. Okay, Matthew, if you remember, Matthew chapter 5 to 7 has what was called a Sermon on the Mount because it was preached on a mountain. Okay, so Luke, level place, Matthew preached it on a mountain. Apparently what happened was this sum of teaching, this sermon, was kind of the essence of what Jesus would teach as he would walk around from place to place and people would gather to hear him teach. And in it, if you read, there's a lot of similarities between Matthew's account and Luke's account. Luke's is a bit shorter, but most of what's missing in Luke's account, Luke puts in at other parts of his gospel. So they're really the core teachings of Jesus. At the end of the sermon, at the end of all the sermons Jesus gave, apparently, he gave this parable. It's a parable of two men. The first man hears Jesus' words and obeys them. He puts them into practice. He sees them as having authority in his life, and so he does what they say. That guy, Jesus says, is like the guy who builds his house on the rock. The rains come, the storms come, but that guy's house 
stands. Okay? The guy that hears Jesus' words and puts them into practice. The second guy, we're told, is like the guy who hears Jesus' words, but it's really one of those in one ear, out the other kind of situations. He hears it, but he doesn't do anything about it. He just lets it slip out. I'm going to go up here because I do see heads doing this around other people. I got you. We're together on this, folks. We got this. That guy, Jesus says, the guy that's kind of in one ear and out the other, that guy is like a guy who builds his house on the sand. The rains come, the storms come, that guy's house is flooded out, washed away. That's the story that Jesus leads this with, or Luke, at least, leads this one with. And I think there's significance to this. Because as I was reading this story, I think the story of the centurion is a perfect practical example of what it looks like to build your house on the rock. I think what we see is this is a guy who not only hears Jesus' words, but is ready to act on it. In fact, we see the opposite, actually. He's ready to act. All he needs is Jesus' word. That's what he's missing. But he wants to put those two together. And I think that's what Luke has when this is in mind. So then Luke sets the scene. We're told that Jesus then entered Capernaum, a small town, and while he was there, he was approached by some of the leading religious figures of his day, some of the elder Jews. Now, these could have been men from the synagogue. They could have been elders from the church or the synagogue at the time, but they were more likely just kind of like local city leaders. And they came up to Jesus and they said, hey, Jesus, we need your help. There's a centurion who's been very good to us. He's, he's really respected our people, he's cared for us, and he's built our synagogue. He helped pay for the synagogue. Please, come help us. Help us heal him. So Jesus goes. Jesus goes. Then, as he's going, apparently word got back to the centurion that Jesus was on his way with a posse. The centurion then asked his friends to go on his behalf and talk to Jesus. And when they come to Jesus, they go, hey, Jesus, don't, don't even bother coming in my house. I, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy not only to have you not under my house, but I'm not even worthy to see you myself. But Jesus, just say the word. Just say the word and I will trust it. Just tell me something and I will listen to you. I don't need you to prove yourself. I know you have authority. And I know that with the little authority that I have, because when I tell a guy to jump, he jumps. When I tell a guy to go, he goes. When I tell a guy to come, he comes. If I got that authority, I recognize your authority is far greater than mine. And so just speak the word, Jesus. At this, like, I don't know what your surprised or amazed face is, but mine is something like this. Uh, you know, big eyes, head cocked back, mouth open. I just imagine that's what Jesus does because that's my surprised face. But the centurion's friends are communicating this to him, and he just, he seems kind of caught off guard by it. In fact, what does he declare here? I tell you, I have not found such great faith in Israel. There was something about this. Jesus realized that this man believed and trusted so much. This guy did not need Jesus to prove himself. This guy didn't need anything. He's like, I just believe it. I believe your word has authority. I don't even need to see you. I don't need you to prove it to me. I believe it. Your word matters. When you speak, I listen. When you say something, I obey. Just say something. 
This is huge for us because he's not asking Jesus to prove himself. He's not asking Jesus for a rational argument and he's not asking for a sign in the heavens that Jesus can actually do this. He just says, I just need to hear your word. The other thing that I want to be clear on in this is he doesn't even need to see Jesus face to face. He is totally okay with secondhand knowledge of what Jesus said. And when he hears the secondhand knowledge of what Jesus says, that's enough for him. This is huge. Simple, very simple. This man hears Jesus and he trusts him. The question is is this how we respond to Jesus? Are we like the centurion when we hear his word, whether it's preached in a sermon or we read it on our own, do we immediately go, yes, Lord, whatever you say, ah, yeah, I'm gonna take you at your word. I'm gonna do it right now. Let's go for it. Or do we protest in some way? Do we go, oh yeah, but I actually need you to prove why your way is best. Jesus, I want to believe you, but I have a hard time because it doesn't always make sense. Can you elaborate? Can you explain that for me? Can you justify yourself? Can you prove why you are true? Why I need to trust you over other sources? Or better yet, do we also do this when we pray? And we pray, God, give me a sign. And we read in the scriptures something that has to do with what we are praying, but we're still like, yeah, not good enough. I need a flock of goats to fly overhead. And that would be really impressive. I would, like I said, I, I do not want to be under that. Um, but you know, what, do, what do we need? Do we need Jesus to justify himself in some way for us to believe him? Or are we able to just take him at his word? I will tell you, these were questions that I wrestled with myself this week. This was hard, okay? Because I want to say I've got the perfect faith of the centurion. Yeah, Jesus, I'm going to take you at your word. But I don't always. I don't. I struggle. There's certain barriers. There are times where I ask, I ask the Lord, oh, you know, I need you to actually kind of prove yourself here. Oh, can you explain to me why that is true? I do that. I do pray for signs. Make sure your word is extra clear to me, Lord. And the centurion didn't do that. Jesus spoke it. He believed it. We read his word regularly. We hear it proclaimed in church regularly. Do we obey it? What's the barrier for you? To test this, this is what I did with myself this week. Is because when I got to this simple message, I was like, all right, well, what do, we, what do we do with this? I started reading some of the commands and promises of Scripture. I just started going through them myself, and I just chose a select few. Some basic commands, some basic promises of Scripture, and I just asked myself a very simple question. Do I believe this? Am I willing to just trust it? Am I willing to put this into practice? Am I willing to say, yes, Lord, your will be done? That's what I did. And so what I want to do this week, or what I want to do this morning, is I want to work through some of those passages with you. I want to throw them up. I want to read them. And I just want you to think, and really, I want you to feel. What's your gut? Do you go, yes, Lord, absolutely. I believe that. Let's go for it. Or is there something in you that says, I need some proof? I'm not really ready to buy into that yet. 
It's okay if you're there, but it's important that you're able to acknowledge it. And so that's what I'm hoping we're able to do today. Acknowledge what is that barrier that prevents us from being able to take Jesus at his word as the centurion did. So let's start with a passage that I think a lot of us are familiar with. Uh, it comes out of John 14, John 14, verse 6. John 14, 6 says this, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Simple statement again, but man, is that a bold claim. Bold claim. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. What makes it so bold is this. He is saying that that life that you long for, that life that you think you need, you're right, you need it, but you're not gonna get it apart from me. Everything deep down within you that you long for, that is only fulfilled in me. And more than that, more than that, if you think at all that you have a right to go before God and ask anything apart from me, you are wrong. No one has access to the Father except through me. Let's break this apart. On Wednesday in our prayer class, we talked about this idea of what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? You've heard this before, right? In Jesus' name, amen. That's how we typically end a prayer. It's kind of become formulaic in the church. But what does it mean? Oftentimes, too, when you're in a prayer circle, right, and it's going around, the only way you know it's the next guy's turn is when somebody says, in Jesus' name, amen. You go, okay, now it's my turn. And then I go on and pray. And then the way you know you're done is, in Jesus' name, amen. It's like our way of, like, passing the baton, okay? But it's got to be more than that. So we explored it. And what we saw as we started to unpack what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name is this. You and I, by our own authority, by our own power, have no right to go before the Father. You and I, because of our sin, because of the broken areas in our life, have been cut off from God. We have no right to ask anything from him. We've assaulted him. We've affronted him. We've offended him. Because of that, we're kicked out of the throne room. We have no right to appear before him. None whatsoever. So not only can we not appear before him, but who are we to think that we can ask him something? Who are we to say, I need a new car. I need health. I need some more money. Who are we to do that? We don't have a right when we rightly understand our sin, when we rightly understand that apart from Christ, we've got nothing. And so what it means to pray in Jesus' name is when we pray, we come and we say, Lord, I have no right to be here by my own authority. I have no right to ask anything. But because of what your son has done for me, because of the blood he has cost or he has covered me with by his death on the cross, because Jesus died for me, and welcomes me into adoption in your family. On that merit and that merit alone, do I stand here and ask you things. It's a way of, again, the biblical image is taking the robes of Christ, the robes of righteousness that Christ puts upon us, and only when we have the right clothing are we able to walk into the throne room of God. 
That's what he gets at when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Without the wedding clothes on, without being covered by the blood of Christ, without the authority of Jesus being spoken over you, you have no right to go before the Father and ask for anything, let alone salvation. And that's what he's getting at. So let's stop and ask a simple question. Do we believe this? Do we believe this? Do we believe that apart from Jesus, we cannot be saved? Do we believe that apart from Jesus, we have no right to approach the throne? At the same time, do we believe that because of Jesus, we are saved? Because of Jesus and Jesus alone, we have a right to approach the throne. Do we believe this? Our students in high school, we talk about these kind of things all the time, and they never directly say this, but you pull this out from a lot of the conversations. The bulk of them really struggle with this idea that they're not good enough to go before God. They often say, yeah, of course I am. I mean, they're teenagers, right? They've got it all figured out. Of course I'm good enough. I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not that bad. And so there's this impression or this understanding that they have that somehow they have earned the right to stand before God and ask for things, ask for salvation, let alone other things. They don't need Jesus. Jesus is a nice afterthought. It's a nice addition. It's Jesus plus something else. Guys, that is a bold claim. That's a bold claim to make that assumption that you have the right to go before God and ask for things. That's a bold claim to assume you're not that bad. Like, I'm going to be honest. I have no problem admitting I am screwed up. I don't have a problem. It doesn't take me long to figure out my sin. It really doesn't. I can come up with it pretty quick. And when I come up with it, I can instantly say, because of this brokenness in my life, because of the times that I have hurt other people, because of the times that I have offended God, I've done things that I am not supposed to do, I know I am in need of a Savior. I know it. So I have no problem with this first part. I have no problem admitting, yeah, Jesus, I, I need help. And I can believe that you are the way. I can believe that it is only by what you accomplished on the cross and only by that that I am saved. I have no problem with that. And so where I come on this is I have no problem submitting to the king and saying, I need help. I need help, Jesus, I need you. I have no problem admitting that. I have no problem admitting it is by grace and grace alone that I am saved. No problem. And so for me, when I get to that place, I can say, okay, Jesus, you are king. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do what you say. I'm going, to, I'm going to submit. How about you? Is it Jesus plus something for you? Or do you feel like you've kind of got this life all handled and figured out? Is there a tension there? Or are you like, yep, I need Jesus. Just asking. Just think about these questions, okay? I'll get to ones that I really struggled with. The second part of this verse that I really like is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I already hinted at this. This idea that somehow apart from Christ, we have life. This life that we long for, this life that we were created for, this life that each of us desires deep down. Each of us, when we look at our lives, tries to fill that void with something else, right? This is just habit. 
The easiest way to indicate this is this. When people retire, right, when they quit their job or they move on from their job, their life expectancy shortens because there's something about they lose their purpose in life. This is a big deal. This is just, this is a common trend in our society that somehow our work, our job dictates the purpose in our lives, gives us meaning, gives us what we long for. But it's not just work for a lot of people. Often it can be your kids. And so you invest everything you have into your kids and then something goes awry with them and they go down the wrong path and you're like, oh, my life is in chaos. This isn't what I dreamed for them. But that's where you put all your eggs. You put them in your kids or your marriage. But your marriage falls apart. Look, I'm not saying that marriage, I'm not saying that kids, I'm not saying that jobs are bad at all. Not in the least bit. The problem comes when we prioritize those things over Jesus. When we believe that those things are going to bring us the life that we desire and we don't put them in submission to Jesus. Let me give you an example that happens every single year with a high school kid. Without fail. Some high school kid will come to me after they blow out their knee, blow out their shoulder, or something else. They were on a full ride track to college. That was their future. Right? They had been doing baseball, they had been doing soccer, they had been doing swim for years. That was their ticket to a future. And then they blow out the knee. Their whole future is in shambles. And so what we have to do every time is we have this conversation about, well, where is it that the Lord can still work in this? Clearly, that wasn't the Lord's plan, but how do you submit your life to him and say, God, wherever you take me, whatever circumstances you throw my way, I will follow, I will submit, I will go. It's a good question, and it's one that teenagers have to wrestle with practically, especially, too, when they get into the wrong college, right? The college of their dreams rejects them, and then they end up at Golden West. Many of your own kids have been here. That's defeating for a lot of students, Oh, my whole future, my whole career, it's ruined. No, it's not. Let's believe that God still has a plan here and God's at work and then those kids throw themselves into this and you see marvelous results. They learn to trust God in a whole new way. But this is not just a thing that students struggle with. This is something you and I struggle with too. We invest, we reprioritize, we have a disordered heart. What we need to recognize is we got to say, what does it look like to put Jesus first? And out of that, wherever circumstances, whatever money we have, whatever job we end up with, wherever I sit at this moment in my life, God, your will be done. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to serve you to the best of my ability. I'm going to love my family. I'm going to love my wife. But whatever you want to do in that, Lord, your will be done. That's a, that's a reversal of thinking. But that's what Jesus gets at. Is that how you approach life? That's what Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Tough questions. Here's another one that I thought of this week, more because this was some, one that I struggled with. Um, this isn't spoken by Jesus, but it's spoken by Paul. But if we believe that Scripture is the Word of God and Jesus is the Word made flesh, that all Scripture is then spoken by Jesus. Paul says this in Romans 13, 1. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. I don't know if you've watched the news this week. 
But there is a lot of fear mongering. There's a lot of hate slinging being going on in this political cycle. And where this verse advocates is not saying that we should not care about politics, care about politics, or that we should somehow pull out of politics. It's not saying that at all. It's just saying that regardless of what happens, in the end, we believe God is in control. We believe that our country, our governance, everything about us is still within the sovereignty of God. And so it doesn't matter if your guy or your girl wins. It has everything to do with the fact that regardless of what happens, God is still in control. And so where this shaped me and challenged me is I am prone to fear. I have my preferences. I'm not going to share them with you. But I have my preferences. And I do get a little scared at times. But there, this had to challenge me was to slow down and to say, okay, God, I believe you are in control. And so instead of just praying, I pray that that person fails. <laughs> it's praying, I pray protection over the candidates, and I pray, Lord, that your will would be done. I pray, Lord, that your ideas would be there. I pray for protection for my country. I pray for wisdom for these leaders. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to guide us. It's a shaping. In the end, it's me truly saying, Lord, I hand politics into your hand. I'm not gonna control them myself. This is one that challenged me. Maybe some others are ones that challenge you. Here's John 1930. It says this, it is, it, with Jesus' dying breath on the cross, John records, Jesus says, it is finished. The separation between God and man is done. The veil has been torn. You and I now have access to the Father. More than that, sin no longer has ultimate control over our lives. Do we believe that? Or do we live controlled and dominated by sin? Do we live as if it hasn't been defeated? Matthew, 20, or Matthew 6, verse 25 and 26 says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, they do not reap, or they do not store in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Do you believe you're valuable? Do you believe that God will take care of you? There are some of you who come and are on the brink of trying to make ends meet every week. This verse, I hope, is a sign of great encouragement. Continue to press into it. You are more valuable than the birds of the air, and yet God takes care of them. Let's get more practical here. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Is this how we pray when we're stressed? I, I don't all the time. I'm learning. I'm learning to. But a lot of times it's, oh God, help me, help me, help me. It's not, thank you for this situation where I can learn to trust on you more. It's not. I, I struggle with this one. James 1.19, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Do we take him at his word there? 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In my Bible class this week, for the 6th and the 7th graders, because I know Maddie was going to correct me on this. I gotcha. For the 6th and the 7th graders, we... Oh, no, it was for the eighth graders. <laughs> you could correct me on this. Um, we were watching a video on Luther. And one of the things that was really interesting about Luther is before he came to understand 
grace and forgiveness in scripture, we are told that Luther would pray or go into the confessional up to three times a day, up to six hours at a time. Just in constant penance and constant confession, he would continue to go and lay out every sin that he could possibly think of before the God, before God. And then he would get up and he'd have this voice in his head. Ah, oh, you didn't really mean it. He didn't believe it. And so then he'd force himself to get back into the confessional over and over. We may not do that to this extreme, but do we believe that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us? Or are we in a cycle that Luther had of not really embracing it? We come every week to this table with the same baggage, believing it still burdens us. Hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven. Do we trust in his words and put them into practice? That's the question today. Are we like the centurion? None of us have perfect faith. I want to be clear of this. All of us doubt at times. I've tried to model that for you. I doubt. I am not perfect. I fail. Okay, you're not supposed to say that as a pastor, but it's important that you hear this. You don't have to have perfect faith. I don't know anybody that does. And if they do, they should come up here because I'm just going to sit down. Instead, what we can be encouraged from in this story is this. This centurion that we read about, he's not a holy man. He's not a superhero of holiness. This is a normal guy. He's just like you and me. He's exactly like you and me. And so where for me, I take in this is this, is I don't have to have it all together. And so I end up praying this hopeful confession. Very often when I come across a passage, Lord, I believe Help my unbelief. This is my simple prayer that I pray a lot. God, I believe your word. I believe it is true. I believe you have authority, but I am struggling. And so I don't know if I read those verses to you earlier and you're like, yeah, but take that but to the Lord. Lay it before him and say, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And so this week, I want to encourage you. Here's some practical application. As you go home and you either decide to spend some time in the word on your own, you're reading it, which I hope you are. You're reading on your own and you come across a promise of scripture or a command of scripture or even a, an indicative statement, something that says this is who you are. I just want you to stop and ask yourself, do I believe that? Am I like the centurion taking Jesus at his word and saying, yes, Lord, I'm going to put that into practice. I'm going to do it. If you're not, that's okay. Start with, Lord, I believe your word is true. I believe your word has authority, but there's something here that troubles me. Help my unbelief. That's my encouragement for you. Like I said, for me, it's a constant reminder that the Lord is in control of the elections. That's my takeaway from this week. And it's slowing down and not getting anxious, but simply praying, Lord, your will be done. Let me pray for us. Father, Father in heaven, Lord, we give you glory and we give you honor for who you are. And Lord, we confess before you that there are often times that we do not trust you 
where it is hard for us to take you at your word. But Lord, we believe your word is true. We believe your son has authority. We believe your word has power and that it is true. Lord, help us in our unbelief. Lord, help us to apply your scripture to our life. Help us to be like the centurion. We're so grateful for his example in scripture. A normal guy. Lord, we pray this not for our glory, not so that we would have some amazing life that we look at, but Lord, we do it because we believe that we live to give you all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. And so, Lord, we turn now to respond to you both with our offerings and with our songs. And as we enter into communion, Lord, may it be to your glory. We say this in the richness of what we, with with all the richness intended. In Jesus' name, amen. As the ushers come up and receive tithes and offerings, this next song is called Give Me Faith, and it is just such a reminder.